Hey guys, I'm Mark Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Super excited to be here. Um, if you're new, we're in the book of Hebrews this morning. And um, as you're opening there, I just want to share a couple weeks ago, I mentioned, uh, invited you to join us in fasting and prayer for our leaders as we got away as an elder team to, to get before the Lord. And uh, it was so good, you guys. We, we had a great time together uh, just talking about what God is doing in our hearts, in our church. Um, and here's the thing we're, we're seeing is that God is doing great things. And as we look into the future, we just think the best days are ahead of us, the most exciting days of what God is doing in the life of Veritas. I mean, we've been in this building for three years now. It was three years ago, October of 2018. It's been a blessing. It's a story of faith in how we got to this place, right? The land and building and everything was about a $9 million total project. And um, we, we were able to, I think it's like five and a half uh, of that we've paid in cash, we've um, paid. So we owe three and a half million on this, but it's been a huge blessing. Many of you guys, our church is growing, um, not just numbers, but also people becoming, learning followers of Jesus, obedient to him. It's amazing to see uh, children's lives transformed. We've seen teenagers, older folks. I mean, the whole, everything in between. God is doing great things. And as we look into the future, it's a big question mark. What does God have for us? Is it a, a church plant? Is it, uh, what is the next thing that, that God is having for us as we try to also facilitate the people that are coming? What does that mean for our facilities? What, it's just a question mark. But the thing that we know is, um, our sailboat is, is moving fast, right? The wind is blowing and God is, is moving us, uh, but we're dragging something behind us and it's three and a half million dollars of debt. And so here's what we don't know, all the things God has for us, but what we do know is we want to be ready to respond to whatever step of faith God has for us. And we believe that will be a much easier step without this debt that we have. And so as we talked, we just got excited about eliminating our debt so that we can be ready for whatever it is that God has for us. And we pay about, um, I think it's a little over, I'll have to get the numbers right, 350000 or more um, of principal and interest every year. That's a lot of money that we would love to use toward ministry. And you guys know what that is, right? Maybe you have kids in daycare and you think, when the kids go to school, what will we do with all that money? Or we've got student loans. What would you do when those student loans are paid off? And, you know, debt is something that you're excited to pay off. And as a church, um, it's not so we can have more stuff. It's that we can be just on mission for Christ and, and just continue uh, to move forward with what he has. So over the next three Decembers, we want to eliminate that debt. And so that's three Decembers, not three years, right? Because that'd be about, uh, whatever, 20, 25 months. We're gonna, over the next three Decembers, um, try to eliminate and see what God would do. Um, and so we're, you're gonna be hearing more about that in the, in the coming weeks. And we just wanna say, thanks for praying. And anytime we pray, there usually means there's a step of faith in front of us. So uh, you're like, man, I don't know if I wanted to pray, if that's with a step of faith, because I'm comfortable. Well, we're just inviting uh, you to join us in following Jesus, and, and we're excited to see what he's going to do. So uh, yeah, brace yourselves. Exciting times here at Veritas. And um, so you'll be hearing more about that. This morning, we're in Hebrews chapter 6. And our topic this morning is hope. 
Hope. What is hope? Hope is the promise of something in the future that gives you a feeling of expectation. Everyone has hope, right? That's why they're still alive. There's something that's keeping them going. It might be something as simple as the next meal, the next game, the next movie that's coming out, the next stage of life, the next whatever. It can be a small thing. It can be a big thing. But there's something in the future that gives us a feeling of expectation. I think that's what was so hard about this last year and a half, right? We saw what happens when you take hope out of people's lives, right? People get angry. People start blaming each other and fighting. And I think it's, it's a little bit of this loss of hope. As we look into the future, it, it seems dark. And so this morning, we're going to see from the climax, the crescendo of our text in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, the writer tells us, seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Last week, Jeff talked about how our tendency is to drift. We need a, a strength coach in our life. We need a physical trainer, someone to, to push us, to jump a little higher, as Jeff was talking about in his, his example. That's kind of like the writer of Hebrews. He's urging us. He wants us to persevere in our faith. And today we find that hope is the fuel for perseverance. A number of years ago, some of you guys will remember this movie, Dead Poet Society. And it came out in, in 1989. Robin Williams was this English teacher at an elite boarding school. And he inspired his th students through poetry. There's a famous scene in the movie. Some of you guys will remember this. Remember this scene. I can't do justice to this scene, but let me quote it. Well, Robin Williams gathers his students around and he stands them in front of uh, the pictures of previous classes from the school who were old and long since past. And he says, we are food for worms, lads. Each of us is going to turn cold and stop breathing. These boys are now fertilizing daffodils. Look at them. But if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Lean in, listen. Do you hear it? Carpe. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. Doesn't that sound so profound? Like you're leaning in, you just, you want carpe diem. Seize the day. But if you think about it, that is so sad. That's one of the saddest scenes in any movie. Basically, he's saying, there's nothing beyond the grave. All you have is today. The future is not worth thinking about because these dead guys are fertilizing daffodils. That's their life, and that's going to be your life. So all that's left is to seize the day. Go home, enjoy the game, and just, just really take it in, because that's all there is. Seize the day. Hebrews 6, what does Hebrews 6 tell us in the verses that I just read? 
Don't seize the day, church. Seize the what? Seize the hope. And where is the hope? Set before you. Veritas, church. Veritas is a Latin word. So what would, what would seize the hope be in Latin if we're trying to make the cool carpe diem phrase? Veritas, spem carpe. That doesn't have the same cool ring as carpe diem. Let's just stick with truth, church. Seize the hope. Seize the hope set before you. How do you do that? Here's what we're going to learn. We want to be like Abraham. Abraham was the prototype of someone who seized the hope set before him. And that was the fuel for his perseverance. Look at verse, uh, Hebrews 6, verse 13. He says, for when God made a promise to Abraham... And what was the promise? Verse 14, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. Here, we're going to give you a little hope equation and it's very simple math. So for those of you that are not into calculus and complex math, uh, I'm speaking your language here, right? It's, there's going to be three factors here on the left. Promise equals hope. The first factor in the hope equation is promise. Hope requires a promise. In Genesis 22 that he quotes here in verse 14, this guy Abraham, for those of you who are new to this whole Bible thing, it's Abraham is called the patriarch. He's like one of the fathers of the Jewish people. He was 75 years old when God came to him and gave him this promise. And the Bible says he was as good as dead. Now, no offense to you, who, those of you in your 70s, that's just Bible language. I think what it's saying is um, they're well beyond the childbearing years, right? And God makes this outlandish promise. He says, I'm going to bless you and multiply you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. What do you have to have to have a nation? You have to have people and you have to have land. And so that's a pretty outlandish thing for this old nomad who's wandering around living in tents. Well, what do you need when someone makes a promise? Because anyone can promise you anything, but what do you need? What you need is assurance. You need the assurance that this person can deliver and make good on their promise. So what does the scripture say here? Verse 13 Again, it says, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. Verse 14, I will indeed bless you. I will greatly multiply you. Skip to verse 16. It says, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. What is that assurance called? So God makes a promise, and he's about to give assurance. What's that Assurance called. It's an oath. We've talked about this before in Hebrews, earlier in Hebrews. An oath is a solemn guarantee. You need this person to swear by something greater than themselves that it's going to happen. So this is the second uh, part of the equation. Promise plus an oath equals hope. An oath requires something sacred, something higher than you. I mean, go out to any elementary school on the playground and what are they doing? 
hey, we're gonna, we're gonna beat you guys in kickball. And they start swearing by stuff, right? I swear we're gonna do that. And the other kid comes back, no, I swear on my mother's grave, right? We're gonna beat you guys or whatever. Like you're trying to, I don't know, mother's grave, something like very holy and sacred. And then someone else says, I swear to God we're gonna do this, right? What, what's happening here? It's, it's Hebrew 6 language. Like what people are doing is they're trying to find something higher to swear by. We do this with an oath of office, right? Put your hand on the Bible, something holy or sacred and say, I do solemnly swear. Now this is a problem for God because who does God swear by? I swear to what? Like what's higher than God? I swear to God. Actually, that's exactly what Hebrews says. He had no one greater to swear by, so he swore by himself. Now, incidentally, this is not a main point of this sermon, but Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 10 talk about taking oaths in God's name. But in Jesus' day, people were not taking oaths seriously, so they were swearing by anything, right? I swear by the temple. I swear by earth. I swear by heaven. I swear by Jerusalem. And Jesus says, don't do that. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay, so let's, let's illustrate our equation so far and see what's going on in Hebrews 6. We've got a promise plus an oath equals hope. So imagine this. Um, we're talking afterwards in the foyer. And I'm, I'm like, hey, I want to I, I make you a promise. Um, what I need from you is if you give me $10,000, I'll give you back $1.2 million on Sunday. And you're like, I mean, that sounds like a good deal. Like what, what motivation would you have to make that deal? That sounds super shady, doesn't it? If your pastor is like asking for $10,000 and promises to give you back 1.2, why would anyone in their right mind do that? Well, number one, who doesn't want to have $1.2 million? Like if I, hey, listen, if I can deliver, and if you knew I could deliver on that, would you do it? I mean, I would. If I knew for sure that you were going to give me 1.2, I would gladly give you whatever you want. Just, hey, yeah, 1.2, be great. Now, but that's not enough. A promise does not equal hope. So what do you need? You need some lawyers involved. You need some documents. Some of you guys have signed your name to some documents. You need assurance. You need an oath. And so you know what I do? I'm like, oh man, you guys, I run into the, op Let, let's go find Jeff Dodge. Okay, Jeff's not here this morning, but say I could find Jeff because he's one of the most trustworthy, kind-hearted, good pastors. Uh, he's the best pastor that we have, okay? So I get Jeff next to me, and I'm like, guys, I say to you, um, I swear by Jeff Dodge that I will get you the 1.2. And he's, he's behind me, nodding his head like, yep, totally. And you're like, um, he's a nice guy. He doesn't have $1.2 million, right? So what do we do? I say, okay, I'm going to find someone. We find someone that has 1.2 for sure. Uh, some rich person, they've got their bank statements with them. We've got lawyers. 
they slide over their bank statement. It says like $20 million in their account. And, and, and the lawyers are like, hey, don't worry about it. It's FDIC insured. And you don't know what that is, but you're like, sweet. Okay, it's FDIC insured. And, insured. and some of you uh, who know what that means uh, are like, I'm definitely not doing the deal. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. So anyway, um, you've got a promise and you've got an oath, but there's something else that hope needs. There's something else in this equation. What is it? It's in verse 15. And so after, what? Waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. Let's look at those two words, waiting patiently. This guy was an old guy when God made the promise, 75 years old. How many years passed before God delivered on the promise? So God promised, God made an oath, he swore by himself, and then, listen, 25 years go by before he and Sarah have Isaac. Romans 8.24 says, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? You don't hope for things that you have right now. It would be weird if I'm talking to you and say you're a married man or woman and you're saying, you know, I just hope that someday I will get married. Like, that's weird. You don't hope for that. Uh, you... Uh, you own a house, and you're like, someday I hope that I will be able to be a homeowner. And like, you already have a house, right? You, you get this, right? You don't hope for things that you already have. So, the third thing hope requires is waiting. Okay, now we've got hope. We've got a promise, we've got an oath, and we're waiting and we have hope. Next, next week, uh, you're really excited because you signed on the dotted line. You signed for that 1.2 million, and you have waited a whole week. And you show up next week, and you are so excited to see me. Usually you go in the side door because you don't want to greet me because I'm always standing out there in the foyer and you're like, I don't want to make small talk with the pastor. I'm coming in through the side door. But this week, you're coming in through the front. And so you come in through the front door and you're like, so about the 1.2. And I'm like, oh yeah, uh, about that. Um, can we look at the contract real quick? And you're like, ah, oh, totally, I got it right here because I knew that you'd be trying to get out of this. And so you pull out the contract. And I'm like, yeah, right here it says on Sunday. Here's the thing. It doesn't say which Sunday. Oh, we didn't put any dates down. And you're like, oh, no. But I'm like, but don't worry. Keep showing up. And I will bring you the 1.2 on Sunday. You're like, why'd I make that deal? You're just, you turn around and you go into church and you are worshiping all morning and you are ticked off. You are angry. You are worshiping angry. 
But you know what happens? You get through the morning, and the next Sunday, you know what? You're feeling like, I don't want to come to church. It's rainy. It's cold. I'm not feeling amazing. I'm tired. But you know what? What are you going to do? You're going to come to church because this might be the Sunday. You've got a promise. You've got an oath, and you're waiting. So what do you do? You show up because that's how you're going to get your money. You do this Weeks go by, months go by, years go by, year 45, your waiting has turned to straight up anger, right? Your waiting has turned to frustration, and sometimes you even forget about it, but yet every single Sunday you keep coming. Why? Because you have the hope of getting $1.2 million. Well, 50 years go by, at one Sunday you see me. And some of you are thinking, I don't have 50 years, I'm, I'm dead. You didn't deliver on your promise. Okay, just for the sake of this illustration, say you live to be like 130. Um, so here you are, you, you see me and I, I pull out this check. You've been wondering like, What's it going to be? Is it going to bring out some big old check? I just hand you a check. And it, you look at it and you're like, I've never seen that many zeros on a check. And with a big smile, I say, here's your $1.2 million. And you're like, how did you do this? You can't make that much money, right? I, I, don't, I don't get this. And I said, oh, I took your $10,000. Um, I just put it. I just invested it, you know, 10,000 times 10% times 50 years. It's this thing called compound interest. Here's your money back. It's 1.2 million. I know they didn't teach you this in school, but uh, I just went ahead and took care of it for you. Um, so anyway, and you're like, that's amazing. Like, here's the point. The hope of that moment, like, kept you coming, right? Here's the thing, Christian. You... If you're a Christian, you are in a season of waiting. And you're not waiting for $1.2 million. You are waiting for the living hope of the resurrection of your body. You are waiting for that hope of glory. And here's the thing. Now, we understand this, that we currently have the power of the Holy Spirit in us, right? We are having believed you were sealed with the, the Holy Spirit. There's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. The dwelling of God is, is in you. This is amazing. The life of God and the soul of a human is, is an amazing thought, but we are only partially experiencing the kingdom of God. Every single time you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are acknowledging that we are waiting. We are acknowledging that we have not yet received the fullness, the fulfillment of the promise for resurrection and eternal life with God. So let's meditate on these two words, waiting patiently for, for Abraham, because I think this is where we live 
And let me clarify what we mean by waiting. This is not, um, this is not just like, okay, sweet, go home, sit around, uh, binge on whatever you got going on with Netflix or whatever. Uh, no, 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 this is, uh, this is a little different. Abraham waits and God miraculously gives him this son, Isaac. But what happens um, in Genesis 22? This is, this is the chapter that's quoted in Hebrews 6. They have this son, Isaac. Now, all hope rests on this son, Isaac. And in Genesis 21 and 22, what does God tell him to do with Isaac? Sacrifice your son, Isaac. So this makes no logical sense to Abraham. This whole promise of a nation depends on him being alive. And so what does Abraham do? He obeys. God, that sounds like a terrible idea. Okay. Waiting means obeying God when it doesn't make sense. That third part of the equation where we live requires obeying God when it doesn't make sense. That's the, if you go back and read Genesis 21 and 22 where, where the writer of Hebrews quotes, you'll, you'll see this story unfold. And, and how does someone do this? How does someone obey when it doesn't make sense? If you go back to Genesis 22 verse five, look at what, look at what happens here. Abraham said to his young man, men, so, so he's got Isaac, he's got some wood to make a sacrifice, some rope to tie his son up to the sacrifice. He walks toward Mount Moriah and he says to his servants, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. That's such an interesting way to say it. Hey guys, we're gonna go worship and then we'll be back. What happens as he lifts the knife to sacrifice his son Isaac? A ram gets caught in a bush and God says, no, Abraham. And he goes and he, he gets this ram and that is when Abraham says, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is our provider. Some of you guys have heard of that song, Jireh. That means the Lord is our provider. The Lord provided the sacrifice. But I love how Abraham describes this scene. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. That's how you obey when it doesn't make sense. So this is the second thing that waiting means. Waiting is worshiping your way through your trials. 
worshiping your way through your trials. This is the way that Christians persevere when the world gets dark, when things get hard, when this doesn't make sense. We just worship our way right through. Some of you say, I don't know how to hope. And I want to say to you, yes, you totally do. You know how to worry, right? Is it, everyone knows how to worry. Well, hope is just like that. Hope is just like worry. I mean, think about what is worry. Worry is when there's something in the future that you're afraid of. And so what do you do? You meditate on it, right? You think about it. You fill your mind with that thing that's in the future that you're afraid of. And you obsess over it, which means it's hard to go to sleep. You wake up in the middle of the night. Your heart is racing. Why? Because there's something in the future that you are afraid of. And so, essentially, worry is when you worship the problem. Well, hope is just like that. Only you replace that thing you're afraid of with Jesus Christ. That's hope. Hope is worshiping. That's where, you know, worry turns into worship. Hope is worshiping the living God. And worry actually turns into hope as you take your eyes off of your problem and onto Jesus. Thank God for your worry and say, yes, like that thing, it's coming, right? Maybe it's coming. It's a real thing. But it's not the biggest thing. It's not as big as Jesus. And worry becomes an opportunity for you to turn your eyes to Jesus. And, and that's, that's how you worship your way through your trials. Verse 17, it says, because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose Again, from Genesis 22, the unchangeable purpose gets us right to John 3.16. God so loved the world. That's what he's talking about. This, this thread of redemption is the unchangeable purpose. The ram caught in the bush is Jesus' sacrifice. So that's what he means there. He wanted to show that unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of his promise. That's us. He guaranteed it with an oath, verse 18, so that through two unchangeable things... This is confusing, but what are the unchangeable things? It's the promise and it's the oath. I swear by myself. Those are the two unchangeable things. In which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge. This is a term for these cities of refuge in the Old Testament. If you accidentally killed someone, they actually had cities set aside where you could go uh, to these places. He says, that's us. We are like fugitives who have run for asylum. We fled for refuge. And where have we fled for refuge? We fled to the throne of grace for refuge. And he says, so that we might have strong encouragement, here it is, to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now, let's stop here. Here's the image we have. 
The image is of a ship that's getting blown around by the waves. But somehow the ship is not just taken off into the open ocean, right? The ship is, is it's, it's moving, but it's held. Something's holding it. What, what is that thing that's holding it? It's the anchor. It's the anchor for the, for the soul, firm and secure. But the anchor is held to something at the bottom of the, of the sea, Right? You can't, when you drop the anchor down, you can't see what the anchor is holding on to. It's a mystery. But somehow the ship, your soul, is not being carried away by the, the winds and, and waves. Why? Because you're anchored. But what are you anchored to? Look at what he says. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. What does the word it qualify? If you're taking notes in your, uh, in your Bible journal, you can circle that word it. And what does it refer to? Okay, it qualifies the word anchor. You can draw a little arrow from it to anchor. That our anchor enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Our anchor is being anchored to the throne of grace. The immovable object that is holding our boat in place, as it were, our soul, is the throne of grace. That's why we are not carried away by the wind and waves, because we are anchored to Jesus Christ. And he says, verse 20, Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's next week. But this is a continuation of the thought from chapter four, verse 14. Remember that Jesus passed through the heavens and the story of if you wanted to go talk to the president and you decided to show up and just like walk into the White House, and go into the Oval Office, what would you need to get from here to there? You would need a forerunner. You would need somebody to go with you, somebody to pass through the White House with you into that sort of sacred Oval Office. That's what he's saying, is that Jesus has walked you there. And that is why your soul is anchored to the throne of Jesus. And just as Jesus' body was raised from the dead and he walked into heaven, so will ours. So here's a very simple question. What is your hope anchored to? When I was a kid, I, was, um, I had saved for a long time and my parents said, we're going to go to Family Fun Center. And I was so excited because I had saved in my Tootsie Roll piggy bank. It was about this tall, this round. And, and I had put quarters in there and all this change. And I had been saving. And when my parents said, we're going to Family Fun Center, I knew exactly what I had been saving for. See, back, back in the, those days, um, so we're talking 80s, early 80s and stuff, um, some of you guys are, who are gamers, uh, I just want to take you back uh, to this time where we had this game called um, Pong. 
Does anyone remember Pong? And here's, let me explain Pong. It's like two pixelated lines on both sides of the screen going like this, okay? And there was a little ball that would just, it was like a little pixelated dot, it would just go boop, boop. And basically, you just tried to hit the ball with your, with your line, and, and that's what you controlled. Like, that was gaming for us, right? So, Pong. Well, there's Family Fun Center was an arcade place, and so they had... They had some new arcade games, and one of them was called Mach 3. Now, for those of us that had been staring at a screen with, with this, Mach 3 was the arcade game that you actually climbed inside of it. It had a joystick. It was this full-on, you were in the jet, and you were controlling it. Yes, this little blue pixelated blob going across the screen like this, shooting stuff like this, and it was in color, Pong was just black and white. So this was amazing. Mach 3, I had the opportunity to go and use my money on Mach 3. My brother had his friend Kurt. And so we went, we ran straight to the game. I got in, blew up this little like orange pixelated stuff, just went. But here's the thing that was so great. It gave a countdown so you could respawn. And so all of a sudden, 10, 9, Eight, and what do we do? I'm like, give me my piggy bank, and I'm just pumping quarters. This game took actually two quarters. Most games, like Pong, one quarter. Pac-Man, one quarter. But Mach 3, two quarters. And I gladly pumped those in. Okay, I'm in there for a little bit. My brother's like, get out. I'm taking over. So he takes over. Then his friend, Kurt, is like, let me go. I'm into the Air Force, and I, I know what's going on. And so he takes over, and I'm just pumping. And, and just every time, like 10, 9, Hey, I'm just pumping the quarters, pumping more, more, more. And, and pretty soon, you, you know what happens, right? All of a sudden, we get down to the end, and we get down to the last quarters. And so I put them in. I'm like, this is the time. You got to focus. We got to conquer this game. He's going to all of a sudden, boom, he loses his last life. And then the countdown begins. Ten, nine, eight. And, and I'm just, I'm looking at my empty piggy bank. And then it's like three, two. We're all just standing around the, this arcade game, just staring at the screen like, what's going to happen? Two, one. And this like orange pixelated just fills the screen. And it just says game over. And I remember that sick to my stomach feeling when I saw the game over. And I remember walking out of Family Fun Center like, I, I can't believe this. I, I, all hope is lost. And I look up at the big sign. It just says, Family Fun Center. And I'm like, it's a lie. It's a lie. Gosh, never doing this again. Oh, church. What are you pumping your quarters into? Because everything has a timer on it, right? It's a scoreboard. It's the end of the game. Three, two, and just, ah. Oh. Ah, oh, we got next week. Or... It's someone you love. 
and you're with them in the hospital room. And it's 10, 9, 8. It's someone you love so much. It's a spouse. Or it's your own life. And what I want to ask is, is your, does your hope pass the death test? Because here's what we believe, church. When we talk about being anchored to the throne of grace, that means when the countdown begins, that's when Christians start getting excited. Three, two, one. I mean, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. To be with God, to, to live as Christ, but to die as gain. Bring the counter. Let it start ticking. And we know this, right? It is ticking. Like, we are going to die. I know we've been trying to suppress this thing all of our lives, but we embrace it as Christians and we see it. And we're not afraid. We are not worried because we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. The dead poet society are saying to the living, there is no life after death. All that's left is to seize the day. This dead prophets society here, guys like Abraham, this great clot of witnesses, uh, they're not dead, by the way, they're alive, more alive than they've ever been, and they are speaking to you this morning, and they are saying, don't seize the day, seize the hope that is set before you, that is anchored to the throne of grace. You live in a land of darkness, but your hope is for a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And so you know what we need to do, Veritas? We need to end with some good taunt, death taunt songs. We, we talked about this in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul taunts death with, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Because you guys have not kept showing up on Sunday because someone's going to hand you $1.2 million. In fact, we would like you to give that over the next few years, but <laughs> that's a different thing. But anyway, you are here because you want Jesus. And that's where we're going to end with communion is we are inviting you to the place where your soul is anchored. And this is the reminder. You have nothing to fear. Take whatever it is that you're afraid of and just walk it up to Jesus and just replace it with the finished work of Jesus Christ. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. The cup, the juice, represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Let's do this and let our souls be anchored to this hope that we have. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this promise that we have. We thank you that you have anchored us to the cross of Christ 
Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, we, if, if we're just gonna be honest, God, we have so many things we're afraid of. So many things we are worried about. Things that are keeping us up at night. Even this morning, uh, there's some people that just, they're afraid of what's going on this afternoon or tomorrow or this week, what's coming up. My prayer for them is that as they come to the table, they would turn their eyes upon Jesus. And those things that they are worried about would go just grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. And Lord, as we sing, we thank you that we have no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us. Let it rise up as we worship. When you're ready, we invite you to come to the table. Let's do this in remembrance of Jesus.